Exit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, is it time to speed up Britain's drawdown from Afghanistan? The enemy, the Taliban, will continue to attack. It's how we respond to it. I'm sure there'll be setbacks during the year. And Pakistan faces some tough questions. We think that there had to be some sort of support network for bin Laden inside of Pakistan. And that's something that the Pakistani government has to investigate. Headlines. Could British troops start coming home from Afghanistan this year following the killing of Osama bin Laden? Ten days after the world learned of the al-Qaeda leader's death, it's reported the Prime Minister's ordered defence chiefs to draw up a new schedule, which could see the Afghan drawdown start this summer. But military leaders on both sides of the Atlantic are warning that could scupper the whole mission in the country. The man in charge of NATO forces in Afghanistan, General David Petraeus, has warned bin Laden's killing may not have a big impact on events there. And Britain's most senior general in the country says it's essential the West sends a clear message that Afghanistan won't be abandoned. The chief of the defence staff, General Sir David Richards, has told the Commons Defence Select Committee we won't be able to properly judge the situation on the ground until the end of the year. It's just too early to tell how successful we're going to be. I think if you were to invite us back for the autumn, it would be a very good time to review it and we can tell you whether or not this year, the, the first real year in which the surge and all this extra effort is starting to pay off, is indeed doing so. In Afghanistan, the Taliban's spring offensive came to the country's second city this week, a two-day running battle in Kandahar, including seven suicide bombings and a shootout at a shopping centre. It follows a recent mass breakout from a jail in the city, but General Richards doesn't think that led to that assault. I think there is no doubt that those, some of those escapees uh, who were capable um, fighters did join in that attack and probably made it uh, more difficult for us and the ANSF to respond. Um, But I don't think it actually led to it. I mean, the enemy, the Taliban, will continue to attack. It's how we respond to it. And so far, things are looking good. I'm sure there'll be setbacks during the year, though. 
To discuss all this, I'm joined by BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee and Richard Norton-Taylor, the Guardian's security editor. Hello to both of you. Richard Norton-Taylor, the attack on Kandahar seems to bear out that view that bin Laden's death won't make a big difference in Afghanistan. Is David Cameron really pushing for an early reduction in troop numbers as a result of his death? Not only directly as a result. I mean, he's been itching to get... Uh, commitment, uh, well, he wants to get British troops, uh, combat troops out by 2014. He wants a commitment uh, from Obama uh, as well and uh, to actually remove maybe some or or withdraw some troops already this summer, which the Americans will do. But I think the effect on uh, Osama bin Laden's killing is is going to be be probably not very great at all in the very short term, but could be, uh, certainly psychologically, on on, on some of the al-Qaeda fighters in... uh, Afghanistan and on their funding. Uh, Christopher, the head of British forces in Afghanistan, General James Bucknell, has warned the Taliban will hang on unless we make it clear we won't abandon the country after 2014. It seems the military are firmly against pulling out early. Are they on a collision course with the government on this? No, I mean, the Taliban's hanging on anyway. It doesn't matter what happens. You know, then they say, you do what you like, we're we're, we're here, we live here. Um, The other side of it, the idea that Cameron is early withdrawing has got to be looked in the context of where British forces have been uh, reallocated, relocated. Uh, We added to the British uh, contingent and said that this year we would probably, with relocation, redeployment, take away as well. But the point being is that combat troops at a combat role, are supposed to be out by 2014, in other words, before the election. There's something else happening. And that was yesterday, there were people at, in the Foreign Office and the Defence Ministry talking about a new idea, and that is to have a regular, in the, it's a long way in the future after the big re- withdrawals, a, a regular standing force in almost like a, a, a private area, like a UN standing force within Afghanistan, have a role. And this is being taken up by the Americans. It's been discussed sensibly by the Americans, and I think the summit in about three weeks' time is going to, going, going to appear on this. Uh, Richard Norton-Taylor, the MOD says uh, no decisions have been made yet about when troops are coming home this year, but it sounds like the Prime Minister is determined to end operations in Afghanistan as soon as possible. I think that is right, and uh, um, people talk about it, and both government uh, ministers and, and defence officials talk about when conditions, the conditions-based withdrawal, well, the conditions-based principle, criteria, and it is a movable feast, actually. And um, I think the, uh, uh, David Cameron is, is it's already made it clear he, he wants to get some withdrawal out very, uh, absolutely as soon as possible. And, and the other point, I think, made by uh, David Miliband, the former Foreign Secretary in Washington recently, that there's a, there's a military exit strategy but not a political one. Um, and that is of concern uh, to defence officials and military commanders who have long said there's no military solution to this. Um, and and, uh, and also the uh, the intelligence people, MI6 and so on, who really are pushing fast for talks with the Taliban and have been rather frustrated by um, Petraeus and the Americans um, wanting to have some more military strikes before they think the Taliban's going to wake up to even agree to any talks. Frustrated by David Petraeus, maybe, but uh, David Richards there said that he was the outstanding military leader of his generation, Christopher. What's the significance of his likely move to the head of the CIA, do you think? Well, I mean, people in Washington say to me, well, one of the reasons he's going to the CIA is because they wouldn't give him the new, uh, new job as chi- chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Hmm. Now, there may be something in that. But I he's mean, still going to have a there. lot of influence. Oh, the head of the CIA is, you know, it, it, it is influence, and it's not simply that what you do with the CIA 
It's your political standing within Washington itself. So, you know, David Petraeus is not going off uh, on gardening leave. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Chabot. Still to come this week, another twist in the row over the military covenant. And can the Scottish nationalists save the country's threatened RAF bases? As US intelligence officials continue to pour over the files seized from Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan, the discovery of the world's most wanted terrorist in the country threatens to cause lasting harm to relations with America. Since news of bin Laden's killing emerged, there have been wide questions over how he could have hid in Pakistan for so long. President Obama's told CBS News he wants to know if bin Laden had official or semi-official help. We think that there had to be some sort of support network for bin Laden inside of Pakistan. But we don't know who or what that support network was. Uh, We don't know whether there might have been some people inside of government, people outside of government, and that's something that we have to investigate, and more importantly, the Pakistani government has to investigate. But that suggestion has infuriated Pakistan's rulers. The Prime Minister, Yusuf Raza Gilani, denying his intelligence agencies helped hide bin Laden. Allegations of complicity or incompetence are absurd. We emphatically reject such accusations. We will not allow our detractors to succeed in offloading their own shortcomings and errors of omissions and commissions in a blame game that stigmatizes Pakistan. Christopher Lee and Richard Norton-Taylor are still with me. Richard Norton-Taylor, US officials say the team sent to bin Laden's compound were authorised to fire on Pakistani forces if necessary. America clearly suspects semi-official collusion in Pakistan. Will they ever be able to prove it? And do they need to? Well, they would like to, and I think a lot of other people would like to. But, of course, it's part, and Obama's probably referring to part of the ISI, the Pakistan Military Intelligence, very powerful organization. It is certainly possible that the civilian leaders, uh, the politicians um, in Pakistan did not know, and they don't really want to know. Um, it was a great bargaining chip, uh, the uh, suspicion, and now we know the knowledge that Osama bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders were in Pakistan, uh, whether ISI were sort of using the Americans, you need us more, they will say, than Pakistan needs America if, uh, if uh, al-Qaeda leaders are, uh, are in Pakistan. Um, so it's the distrust, and w- who will know that whether what group, what particular group in the ISI, was it a group which kept apart from the main leaders of the ISI, or did indeed, indeed the leaders of the uh, ISI, the generals, know as well? That would be the big question. Well, Chris, what do you think the US would do if it convinces itself Pakistan agencies were assisting? Assault? I think it has convinced itself. Uh, it doesn't actually have to do anything. It's actually happening now. I mean, for example, the uh, Pakistanis uh, w- w- were telling uh, four weeks ago now, the Americans, they're going to pull out some of their CIA people. They've got 300 there, pull out 150, we're getting fed up with it, and stop these predator attacks. What do the Americans do? Carry on the predator attacks. Interesting, I was looking at the, um, the Indian newspapers. And, for example, the Delhi newspaper Mail Today, after Osama was killed, it says, Osama killed, Pakistan wounded. In other words, they believe that uh, the people in the ISI, everybody believes people in the ISI were protecting him. And they've got great interest to actually to, to do so. The Americans know this, the Indians know this, and don't forget, India is a very big player. By the way, the Prime Minister, Mr. Singh, is in Kabul today, first visit for six What's years. What's he doing there? Uh, he's going to discuss aid to, to Afghanistan. I suspect that 
probably by tomorrow he will have announced a big aid program. I think it's $1.3 billion at the moment. One of the biggest aid uh, producers for the whole region. So don't leave out uh, India in this because Pakistan's great concern is not Afghanistan in, in, in that sense. Af- uh, Pakistan's view, military view, is that India is the big problem. India see that in reverse, say Pakistan is a big problem, and we know what's going on there, and they do know what's going on there, and they say the ISI, and Rich is quite right, it may not be at the top level, but he was being protected by certain members and certain core groups, a cohort almost, uh, within the ISI. Uh, Richard Norton-Taylor, on the subject of the relationship between Pakistan and America, uh, Pakistan, we heard, warn that a repeat incursion into the territory would be met with force, uh, and it's also in retaliation to the killing of Osama bin Laden, uh, leaked the name of the local CIA station chief. Um, Realistically, uh, there's nothing they can actually do if the US carries out a similar strike, is there? Well, not really. Well, there's a blind eye point, too. I think, that, uh, as Chris also suggested, that uh, the um, drone attacks in northern was, well, southern was, was done well on the tribal areas where they think al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban fighters are, uh, um, are accepted privately by Pakistan. But it all comes down to it that, that Pakistan thinks, right, rightly, I think, that, that America, at the moment, America needs Pakistan rather than vice versa. And so they can uh, not quite blackmail America, but uh, they can use America. And they, they had this uh, bargaining chip, which is now gone. That's why they're so, uh, well, they're quite, quite wide. It's certainly... What do you think sense, the next move will be, Richard? Uh, the ne- next move by who, sorry? Uh, you t- you're saying the bargaining chip has gone. What, what can they do to bolster their position, do you think? The Pakistanis? Yes. Well, I think they can, they, can, uh, they, can, they can tease America to a certain extent. I don't think they will... I, uh, I think th- it's a good question. I don't think they will do very much um, in terms of, of practical stuff on the ground. I think there would be a lot of rhetoric, a lot of propaganda, and whipping up uh, anti-American propaganda up to a point. But, of course, America, America's patience will not, was not uh, everlasting either. And, and the amount of billions of dollars of aid that, that America gives Pakistan, uh, a lot of which goes to the ISI, by the way, and a lot to the um, creamed off by the, by the military. So the, the military and the Pakistan and and who has the power, will not want to upset America too, too much. All right. Richard Norton-Taylor, thanks for your time today. Um, Christopher, just on the subject of the intelligence that is being gathered from Osama bin Laden's compound, um, we've seen some material, but what we'll be learning, what will, be, what will not be shared with the rest of the world that's been recovered there, do you think? The Americans have got intelligence in three packages. One is tactical, which they've already used. And so within 48 hours of Osama's death and then getting it, they got names, couriers, etc. There were 12 guys killed within about, I think it's about 14 hours of them getting that information. So that's the tactical. What do you do? Who's doing what? Who might be planning? Then they've got the theater intelligence. And that sort of says what's being planned in the future, what are the command structures, who's running different bits of it. And then there's the bigger thing, which extends right around the world. It's the strategic ambitions of of, of, of Al-Qaeda or people who are sort of going into Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda and say, this is what we want to do. When Liam Fox, for example, goes to uh, Washington, as he will, in a couple of weeks' time, they will give him updates and briefings, although he's far more interested in, you know, times for withdrawal from, uh, from Afghanistan itself. But a lot of that stuff is already coming home. Last night there was a briefing, for example, in the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee, which is uh, Lords and Commons at, at Westminster. They were already talking 
about some of the stuff that had come out of the uh, out of the uh, uh, computers, the flash drives, everything that we've already got. And so that is what kind of stuff. It's the sort of stuff that I was just talking about. You know, who's doing what? Are we confirming? And importance of gathering electronic intelligence, that sort of intelligence, is is this: you quite often don't learn anything new, but what you do, you confirm what you think you know. And that was extraordinarily important. And that is already coming out. So, and don't forget, when, when, when he goes, Liam Fox goes over there, he'll get a, a, an extra briefing story thus far. But he's only one customer in, in the world, but in particular, he's only one customer uh, in, in London. I mean, the Foreign Secretary's got to know, Intelligence Services, GCHQ have got to know. They're already getting stuff in. Well, that's what I was being told last night. Well, let's turn briefly to Libya now, where NATO forces have continued to strike at targets in Tripoli in what seems, although officially denied, to be an ongoing operation directly targeting Colonel Gaddafi. In Misrata, meanwhile, a humanitarian crisis is worsening in the besieged rebel-held city. The UN's aid chief, Baroness Valerie Amos, says it's obvious civilians are not being protected. I think that the indiscriminate shelling and bombing by any of the parties to the conflict of uh, civilians, the use of cluster munitions. None of this is acceptable and it should stop. I don't care who's doing it. Thousands are fleeing Libya by boat, threatening to create a new refugee crisis in southern Europe. One ship carrying up to 600 migrants sank off the Libyan coast, killing many of those on board. Melissa Fleming is from the UN's refugee agency, the UNHCR. More and more desperate people are boarding rickety smugglers' boats to get out of of Libya completely overcrowded and unwieldy and pushed off to sea, a big tragedy, and one of many, I have to say. Christopher, we've been told to prepare for the long haul in Libya, according to the Foreign Secretary. Uh, Tell me what you've gleaned from that meeting you were talking about last night on the strategy. Okay, there are three options as far as the British are concerned that are happening in NATO. Exclude America from this at the moment because they'll go in with predators when they're ready and they've got a target. Okay, the The intelligence picture looks like this. There are three options. Two of those options include getting rid of Gaddafi. Now, that was made clear. Do you remember the Sarkozy-Obama-Cameron piece in one of the British newspapers about, what, three, four weeks ago? We've apparently opted for the third option, the one that doesn't doesn't include getting rid of Gaddafi. It is containment of what is going on there. But that's not being said uh, uh, publicly, is it? No, it's not being said publicly because nobody is quite clear. There is a difference here. It's not uh, not an argument. So containment meaning meaning what exactly? Okay, for example, um, there's been the, the, the rebels have started to surge in that sense that they've, over, they've taken the airport at Miserata, yes? Yes. Which is very good because, by and large, it puts the uh, Gaddafi forces out of range with using their, I know, their grad rockets and the 120mm uh, uh, mortars. Very important because the 120mm mortar delivers cluster bombs. Indeed. That's the way they do it. Now... They're only 25 miles away, so they can the the the, the uh, Iraqi uh, sorry the um, uh, Gaddafi forces, so they can regroup. That's important to realise that when things happen, when you get a surge, when you get a victory, you've got to hold it, and that's not happening at the moment. Now, so containing 
is trying to contain the situation so as much as you can. You actually sort of stop further movement. You actually say, right, we will gradually wear these people down. The whole policy, and this is American policy, is the same policy that started in 1946 of containing communism. So it's a, it's a standard practice of actually. The idea being what then? Wear who down? With, with what end uh, principle? What end goal exactly? Okay, well, the end goal, in theory, uh, is, is that Gaddafi will go or his people will take him or he will be hit by the Americans. I mean, that's the end goal. That's the change of. It's regime change. Contain it, wear his troops down until they get fed up and then he well, goes. Well, you, 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 you contain them so that you minimise their movement. They minimise how much they can do, minimise how many targets they can reach. You know, if you put somebody out at 25 miles outside that airport area, um, then you're not going to get in with uh, 120 millimetre mortars. You know, they don't go that far. That's the sort of thing. Problem being is that Gaddafi's lot still contain the two fronts of the eastern part of that area, and they haven't managed to contain them, i.e. keep them away from those targets. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Last week's elections brought a surprise result in Scotland. The SNP won an outright majority in the Scottish Parliament, the first time any parties managed that since devolution in 1997. The party's MSPs now include the constituencies covering the threatened RAF bases at Lossiemouth and Lucas and the SNP's backing campaigns to save both. A final decision on both bases is due within months, but Scotland's new government has already demanded talks with the Defence Secretary. Earlier, I spoke to Angus Robertson, the SNP spokesman on defence, and I started by asking him what he wants from those talks with Liam Fox. We're aware that there's a rationalisation process uh, underway with uh, bases closing and further bases likely to close in the UK, service personnel being brought back from Germany, uh, and uh, we have very strong concerns uh, that uh, the trend of uh, disproportionate defence cuts, which has been happening in Scotland for some time now, will be continued in this uh, basing review. We're very much opposed to that because we're supporters of uh, a strong conventional defence, maintaining the defence footprint in Scotland, uh, retaining the number of servicemen and, and servicewomen because we, we actually have very few based in Scotland uh, and uh, that's why in the wake of the historic Scottish Parliament election results, we hope that the MOD will acknowledge that the political landscape has changed utterly. The SNP won a landslide victory. We represent almost every single constituency in Scotland with a a, a defence link, and we want the MOD to think twice about their plans to close further facilities in Scotland. That said, Holyrood doesn't have power over defence policy, so surely surely last week's uh, election and result uh, makes no difference on the issue. If the London government continues with disproportionate defence cuts uh, with manpower levels which are anemic compared to that which they would be with independence, uh, the maintenance of defence spending on things that we don't want in Scotland like Trident as opposed to conventional defence, the maintenance of historic Scottish regiments, the retention of bases that we are long-standing supporters of, if the London government doesn't understand that they're undermining their own case for the union with some of the decisions they're making, well, that's their mistake. So what's your case for saving Lottie Mouth and Lucas? 
if uh, one is to have a defence policy uh, tailored for the whole of the United Kingdom, uh, then our uh, defence installations should be throughout the United Kingdom and not just in one part of it. There are very strong defence and security arguments to retain air bases in the northern part of uh, the UK. Uh, Scotland uh, has had three air bases. Uh, it's likely that it will go down to one. Uh, by comparison, our near and independent neighbour, Norway, has seven air bases, considerably more aircraft and helicopters than the UK currently has based in Scotland, and they have those capabilities because they are of strategic and defence importance. I believe Scotland should have that too. Uh, I also think we should have more than the 12,000 service personnel which are currently based in Scotland. I fear that we're going to see further cuts. If two air bases are shut in Scotland, that will be a 70% cut in the RAF in Scotland. It's absolutely unprecedented. I think people in Scotland are rightly angry that we are facing these disproportionate defence cuts, and that's why not only uh, will I be meeting with defence ministers, but I will be meeting with the service chiefs. The Treasury and the MOD are happy for us as taxpayers or as families to, to see our sons and daughters uh, sign up to the armed forces, yet the armed forces is having ever less of a commitment to many of the nations and regions in the UK. I think really it is time for senior military planners to have a look at the numbers, have a look at the map, ask themselves, why does everything have to be based in the southern half of Britain? Angus Robertson, the SNP's defence spokesman. Uh, Christopher, um, the Scottish Parliament may not have specific power over defence, but the election last week shows views are very different there. Um, has that bought the SNP enough influence to actually affect any decisions? No, it hasn't. These decisions that can be made by the MOD and particularly by the, the Army, to some extent with the, with, with the Royal Air Force. Uh, the Royal Air Force got two bases that could be vulnerable or, or, or could be used for other things, like one of them could be used, let's say Lossimoth could be used or Lucas could be used. But used for what? So you bring people in, let's say soldiers. Have they got the facilities? Have they got the backup? Have they got the logistics? Do you think that might happen? Have, yeah, one of them probably will happen. But in the meantime, Time, uh, the Germans are saying to the army, and the army are talking to the Germans about this, uh, as the British army are talking to the Germans about this, why don't you bring some of those blokes where you need accommodation, why don't you let them stay in Germany for much longer? Because the Germans make an absolute fortune <laughs> out of... I mean, it's they, all about they, money in the end, isn't it? About landlords, you know, mm. and that's, that's a very good op uh, point. Idea. But we'll know more about it probably the end of this month or probably the end of June. Look forward to that one. It's a year since Britain's first post-war coalition government took office and the last 12 months have had a big impact on the forces, not least the Defence Review. And now ministers are struggling to deal with a row over the military covenant, the deal between the state and those who don uniforms to defend it. In opposition, the Conservatives promised to strengthen the covenant, but the Armed Forces Bill stopped short of enshrining it in law. MPs were due to debate that bill this week, but that's been postponed after one Tory backbencher tried to write the covenant into law. The Prime Minister insists his government's already done a lot on forces welfare. I do want to see a very strong armed forces covenant set out, clearly debated in this House and clearly referenced in law. And I want to see us actually make bigger steps forward on the things we do to help our armed forces families. Now, we have made some steps over this last year, doubling the operational allowance, giving more money to schools where forces children uh, go, helping in ways uh, including health and also scholarships for those whose, whose parents have sadly fallen in battle. But I believe there is more we can do and this government will not let up in making sure we have an armed forces covenant we can be proud of. 
Well, on the line is Catherine Spencer from the Army Families Federation. Uh, Catherine, you heard David Cameron's list of achievements on military welfare. Do you think we really need to write the military covenant into law? Well, it's one that it's a very difficult question to answer because as a federation, we're obviously contacted by families who feel that the covenant has come under increasing pressure and as in fact some of them have said it's broken um, because of reductions to allowances, uh, reductions to pensions, threat to continuity of education allowance and threat to things which they had seen enshrined um, within their, or they felt were a part of their terms and conditions of service. It's very tempting to say that we need to put this into law. The difficulty is if we actually write down what we think it should be, we are in danger of excluding things from that. And if the situation changes and we then come across an element which we believe should be part of um, terms and conditions of service or part of the covenant and it's not in that covenant, then it could be thrown back at us and it could be said, well, it's not in the covenant. At that time, it wasn't seen as important. Why do you need it? So I think we have to be very cautious about saying that we want it actually set in stone. Why, why do you think ministers are so reluctant to put it into, onto the statute book? Well, I think it's about getting it right because what I think we understand that soldiers want to see their substantial effort um, recompense, that they want reward for that, but it means different things to different people and I think it's just under a lot of... There's very great danger of getting it wrong. We hear the Defence Secretary is trying to end the row by getting other departments to boost their support for current and former servicemen and women. Now, what extra help would you like to see? Well, I think we'd, we'd like to see, first and foremost, um, for serving personnel, um, greater um, expenditure on housing. We know that the Defence Estate currently is um, under extreme pressure, and we believe that um, the threat to the expenditure on further, on further threat to um, expenditure will mean that the defence estate will deteriorate further still. So that will mean that families will be living in accommodation which isn't properly maintained and they could find that in areas like, say, Salisbury Plain in London where property is under um, intense... Um, it's where it's very difficult to get hold of an army quarter, uh, that families may be living some way away from their place of work. Catherine Spencer from the AFF, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Christopher, the deadline for voluntary redundancies in the Royal Navy looms. It's Monday, isn't it? Mm. What's the problem with Well, this with is the it? first lot. Um, if you want to get rid of a 1,000 guys, so you say, right, we want a 1,000 volunteers to go. They're not getting a 1,000. And by Monday, they're not going to have them. And so the army are in a similar position, the RAF less so, but they've all got thousands to get rid of to actually say, I'm sorry, time's up. And so between now and September, they're going to be have, the army and the Air Force and the Royal Navy are going to have to be saying, OK, you haven't volunteered. We are going to start choosing people or choosing areas where we want people to go. And so for the next two or three two or three months. That's going to be the main story as far as uh, as service personnel. That's it for this week. As usual, my thanks to Christopher Lee. If you have any views on the topics we've covered this week, why not get in touch with us? Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com Don't forget our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. Bye-bye for now. DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS.